Good evening. You can make your way in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at another of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. And we'll go from verse 33 to verse 46. Uh, so I'll start by reading our passage and then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help this evening. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Then uh, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this evening before you, assembled in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that cornerstone that you have chosen and is precious to you, but is a stumbling block to so many. Lord, we pray you would give us grace and wisdom as we look at this parable. Help us to rightly divide it, that we might see the preeminence of Christ, that your people are defined not by natural descent, not by belonging to a religious group, but they are defined by Christ, by faith in him. Lord, help us to see and apply this parable. In Jesus' name, amen. So I found this parable to be one of the most challenging to, um, not just to interpret, but to uh, to preach, to, to lay out and how I would preach it. And um, there's a lot. There's a lot of issues 
in this parable and surrounding this parable. Um, and hopefully we can get to those and hopefully it will be clear tonight. But we're going to start by looking again at the context. Remember, two important things. I'm going to hammer these every time I talk about a parable. When you're interpreting a parable, look at the context of the parable. Then try to boil it down to a main point. Now, this one, as we're going to see, kind of jumps the gun a little bit. It doesn't have just a, a one little main point. There's a lot to this parable. But we're going to start by looking at the context of this parable. So if you go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, uh, an important event is happening, right? The triumphal entry. Jesus is uh, journeying to Jerusalem with his disciples, and this will be his final Passover, right? He's, he's entering into the last week of his earthly life and ministry. And so Jesus, as you, you know the story, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, go and you'll find a donkey tied there and bring it to me. And he rides in on the donkey and he fulfills the words of the prophet. Say to the daughter of this, this is verse five, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and then we see that in verse 12, he enters the temple. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. There he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Just as Old Testament Israel had made the temple a den of robbers before it was destroyed by Babylon, so the Jews in Jesus' time had done the same thing. They have turned the worship of God into um, a corrupt, they have corrupted it and turned it into a den of robbers. So he cleanses the temple, drives them out. And then the next day, in verse 18, in the morning, as he's returning to the city of Jerusalem, being hungry, he sees a fig tree by the wayside, and he goes to that fig tree, and he finds nothing but leaves on it, and he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once, and his disciples marvel about it, right? But this is, the fig tree is more than just a lesson on believing prayer, right? The fig tree is a symbol of Israel, and Jesus is cursing, right? He's gone to their temple looking for good fruit. He's gone to their place of worship looking. Is there true worship going on here? And what does he find? A den of robbers. So symbolically, Jesus curses this fig tree as a symbol of the unbelieving people of Israel. No fruit will ever come from you again. And then in verse 23, he enters the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leaders of the people, came up to him as he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? You know what happens, right? He asked them, well, let me ask you one question and then I'll answer your question, right? What was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And of course, they won't answer the question because they don't believe 
in John. They don't believe in the messengers that God has sent to them. So we see this conflict, this escalating conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And so then Jesus proceeds to tell them two parables, right? So there's one parable before the parable of the tenants. It's the parable of the two sons. This is verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And then he went to his other son and he said the same thing. And that son answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. He kept sitting there playing video games and didn't get up. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, well, the first, right? Because he actually did go out and do it. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe. So this parable is quite easy, right? What is obedience? It's not lip service, it's action, right? And then that's, that sets us up for this parable right here. So, so get the picture, right? We have two big events, two scenes going on. An unfruitful, unbelieving people of Israel who've corrupted the worship of God and a confrontational, rebellious leadership. The, uh, the chief priests, the elders, and we're going to see the Pharisees are also in on this conversation. The leaders who have rejected the authority of God's messengers and especially the chief messenger, which is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that sets us up for this, for this parable. So let's look at the content of the parable. All right? Uh, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and then leased it to tenants, and then went in to another country, right? So we have a, a landowner, a wealthy man, who's built this ideal vineyard, right? It has everything it needs. It, it, there's a wall around it, so the animals won't come in and you know, destroy the, the vines. It's got um, a wine press already there in it. You don't have to take the grapes off site. It's right there. It's the tower to keep it safe so they can watch. It's got everything it needs. And he's leased it to these men. And so these men are to work this vineyard. And then they pay the rent by giving the landlord some of the fruit at harvest time, some of the wine, right? There was a pretty good gig here. But then it all goes wrong, right? In verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, right? To get what was owed to him. <laughs> this is fair. But these servants are, are wicked. The tenants are wicked. They took these servants, they, these messengers, and they beat one. They kill another. They stone another. Then the landlord sends another barrage of servants, and they do the same to them. And then finally, of course, the landlord says, I will send 
my son, right? The heir of this vineyard. They will surely respect my son. But of course, we know what happens. When the tenants saw the son, this is uh, verse 38, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So let's pause here at the end of verse 39. So now let's do a little bit of interpretation before we get to the last part of this parable. So before, in other parables, I encourage you not to try to find significance of this represents this, this represents this. Now that is unless uh, it's quite obvious or Jesus tells us what it is in the parable. But, so there is some kind of symbolism in this parable. We do, there are people and characters that correlate to other things outside of this parable, of course. So there's three elements very important elements in this parable. There's a landowner, there's a vineyard, there are tenants, and there's a son, and messengers and a son. These are very important key elements here. And of course, the, the, the landowner is God. We know that, right? He is the creator of all things. All things belong to him. The vineyard is his, the earth is his, all people are his. It's his. The tenants in the parable are representative of the Jewish leaders. And we see this made clear down in verse 45. If you go down to verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So who are the tenants in this parable? They're the Jewish leaders. But more than just these particular Jewish leaders... Because this parable is really a symbolic summary of Israel's long history of failing to give God the fruit that he was looking for. And persecuting his messengers, these servants who represent the prophets, right? The messengers are the prophets that God sent to warn Israel, to correct them. And then Jesus prophetically warns that this rebellion will culminate in them killing him, the Son of God. So I know there's other, we're going to get to other things, what the vineyard represents. We'll get to that in a second. So the story is set up here, and I don't know how, but the uh, chief priests and Pharisees haven't quite connected the dots just yet. So, so they get, Jesus gets to the end of the story, right? They took the son, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. <clears throat> and then masterfully, Jesus turns this parable before, before ending it. He doesn't interpret it himself. He masterfully turns it over and asks a question. Now again, just like there's so many parallels, as we've mentioned this before, um, you know, with how, think about how Nathan confronted David. Right? David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband. Nathan comes into the throne room with David, and instead of directly confronting David, he tells him a story, doesn't he? He gives him a parable. You know, the guy had all this rich man, had all the sheep, and there's this poor man who only had one. Rich man took the poor man's sheep and ate it. And David says, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan turns around and said, yeah, you're that guy. Well, Jesus is about to do the same thing here. Right? 
So he comes to the, the end of this story and he says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Right? He poses the question and gives it to the chief priests and Pharisees to answer the question. So that they answer correctly. They, say, they said to him, verse 41, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. Good answer. Right answer. Right? And so now Jesus, now Jesus has got them. Right? This is the gotcha moment. So he turns around and he says to them, Have you never read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? So now there's a connection in this parable between sun and stone. And it's kind of interesting because in Hebrew, those two words are very similar. Sun in Hebrew is ben, and stone in Hebrew is eben. Right? So there's a connection between this. The sun that you rejected is the stone. And he's quoting from Psalm 118. The stone that was rejected that then becomes the very foundation stone of God's work and his, his spiritual temple. And then we see also in verse 42, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he continues to follow up with their answer. Therefore, verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So let's pause right there. So the chief priests and the Pharisees have given their own uh, condemnation, right? We have this track record of resisting God's prophets all the way up to killing the very Son of God, which we're about to do in a week. And we give our own sentence. God will put us wretches to a miserable death. Right? And that is fulfilled in A.D. 70. The Romans come in and destroy. And Jesus will talk about this in, in Matthew chapter 23 and 24. Uh, when he, remember when he tells the disciples, you see all these stones, these beautiful stones of the temple? They will all be thrown down. Why? Because you did not know, right? You did not know the time of the Messiah's coming to you. You rejected him. And so you will be put to a wretched and miserable death. And then, secondly, the vineyard, which we see in verse 43, represents the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. The vineyard represents the kingdom of God. And as we've said, as I said before, kingdom of God sometimes is a tricky term to define. What does he mean by that? I mean, just earlier, when he talked about the parable of the two sons, he said that these guys weren't even in the kingdom of God. So how can something be taken away from them if they're not even in it? All right, so he's defining kingdom of God in a different way. I think what Jesus means here by the kingdom of God is, 
is that the kingdom of God in this sense is that group of people who are outwardly associated with God and his saving purposes and activities in the world. It's a visible group, right? They're the group that has the badge. We belong to God here on earth. We claim to be his people. We claim to represent him on earth. We have that label and we have these amazing privileges. We're, we're the people of God. We have the scriptures. To us, as, as Paul said, to them belongs the covenant. To them belongs the, the descendant of the Messiah coming. I have all these privileges. And guess what Jesus is saying? I'm taking that away. I'm taking it away from unbelieving Israel. And it's going, that label is going with Jesus. And is now going to be on his people, the church, which will be made up of believing and confessing Jews and Gentiles. Now this idea would have been unthinkable and devastating, not only to the Jewish leaders, but to, to all the Jews. And in Luke's gospel, when he records this um, parable, the people respond by saying, surely not. That can't be. You're taking the kingdom away from us, from Abraham's children, from Abraham's descendants. And we're going to come back to this. I think this is one of the major ideas and that needs to be flushed out in this parable. But we'll come back to it in a second. But then Jesus ends in verse 44, still talking about himself as the stone, as the rock, as the foundation stone of God's people. He says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Some people try to make that a, you know, a positive at first and then a negative at the end, right? If you fall on him, that is, if you humble yourself. But I think both of these terms are terms of judgment, right? Jesus is a stone and a rock can have a good purpose and it can have a, um, it can be a good thing and it can be a harmful thing depending on what you're using it for, right? If you're under fire, you go hide behind a rock, that rock is your shelter, that rock is your shield, it's a good thing. You push that rock over and it rolls down and crushes your enemies and now it's a bad thing on your enemies, right? So, so the same with Christ, you run to him and take refuge in Christ. You run to him as savior. He is a safe refuge. If you fight him and resist him, he will crush you. That's what Jesus is saying to these chief priests, these Pharisees, these elders, who, as we find out, will go out and begin to lay plans to arrest him, to kill him. Right? They think... That they're going to get the upper hand. They're, we're going to kill this guy, throw him out of the vineyard. He won't bother us again. Jesus said, you reject me, I will be your downfall. I will crush you. Gentle and lowly. So I think that if, if I try to encapsulate what is the message of this parable in a sentence or two, I would say it, it shows us that God has ordained a radical 
change of administration in his kingdom on earth. A radical and unexpected, even though it's there in the Old Testament, it was hidden from their understanding. They didn't understand there was going to be a change of administration. That the old administration who did not believe and did not receive Christ would have to march out and be put out of the kingdom. And that new tenants would come in, new administration would come into this kingdom. Unbelieving Israel will be thrown out of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God will now be identified not with ethnic or national Israel, but with the church of Jesus Christ, believing and confessing Jews and Gentiles. So first of all, we see the, the mystery of God's purpose in this kingdom that came with Jesus Christ. An unexpected change of administration that resulted from a hardened Israel, an Israel that did not believe, did not see, a rejected Messiah who would be crucified, and then that would send salvation, the, the message of the gospel, into all the nations, bringing in the Gentiles to be made God's people through Christ. So we, we see from Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118, this was the Lord's doing. This was his plan all along. This was his hidden plan. God, we have to understand God only has a plan A. Right? His, his plans don't get messed up and then he's like, well, now what am I going to do? He's always had one plan. He's decreed all that happens from the very beginning and it all comes to pass he accomplishes everything according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians chapter 1 says. But that doing included the hardening of Israel, their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, leading to his death and resurrection. And that was the foreordained plan of God. And Luke, Luke lays this out for us in Luke chapter 24. Luke repeats this several times at the end of his gospel. He wants us to make sure we understand this point, right? Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And, and why would he suffer? Because he was not received by his own. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The Jews were blinded, were hardened. Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So that by Israel's hardness, blindness, and rejection of Christ, the gospel is projected into all the world. And that's why you and I are sitting here. 
It's why you and I have come to believe in Christ because His own people rejected Him. And so he sent, Jesus sent His followers out into all the world to preach to all the nations. And, and so, it, you know, have you ever thought about that? Like, here we are. Here's Christianity dominated by many different nations, many different cultures, Gentiles, non-Jewish. But yet we have a Jewish book, right? We have a, I mean, the Old Testament is clearly Jewish. The New Testament is dripping. We have a Jewish Messiah. And, and, but here we are. Right? A bunch of people from all different nations. What happened? How did that happen? How is it that there are so few Jewish believers, but so many Gentile believers? Well, Jesus lays it out for us in this parable. Jews were blinded and hardened of heart. So this was the mysterious purpose. God revealed it in the Old Testament Yet it was still hidden. And so the parable really begs us to address a few questions. What happened with Israel? What happened here? Did God just annul this covenant with Israel? Said, I'm done with you guys? What, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? How should we view Israel today? Well, Paul really helps us with this in Romans chapter 9 through 11. We're not going to go through all these, those chapters, <clears throat> but I encourage you, if you have a hard time with this idea, really slowly go through Romans chapter 9 through 11 and see how Paul lays this out. So we're going to, let's go over to Romans chapter 9. And... I'm just going to read a few verses, I think, that help clarify it. Okay, so first he begins chapter 9 by lamenting that his own people have fallen away, right? He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's verse 3. So notice this. <clears throat> what is then, what is the condition of unbelieving Israel? It's exactly what Paul said he would have taken, right? They're accursed and cut off from Christ. And then go down to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now that's a very important point, right? Because think about all the promises, all these promises in the Old Testament, all these promises that God made to Israel. And so does he just say, no, never mind, I'm done with it. No, God's promise has not failed. Why is that? He explains. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, that can be confusing. What do you mean, Paul? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not, not all Ethnic Israel, descended from Abraham, are the elect of God. They're not the elect Israel. They're not the believing Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he gives us two examples. We have Isaac and Ishmael, right? And then we have um, Jacob and Esau, both 
physical descendants of Abraham, but only one of them is the children of the promise, the elect of God. So here, so he, Paul gives us an understanding here. He helps us to see that not all the physical descendants of Abraham are the elect people of God. God's covenant promises did not belong to the hard-hearted, unbelieving Israel, but to the chosen, believing remnant within her. Let me say that again. God's covenant promises do not belong to the hard-hearted, unbelieving Israel, but they belong to the chosen, believing remnant that is within Israel. These believing Jews from Abraham to Moses and Joshua, David, all the way down to King Josiah, these were the true Israel. And even the believing Jews of Jesus' day. Remember those prostitutes and tax collectors that Jesus was talking about? Who believed John? Who believed Christ and entered the kingdom of God? There's Israel. Chief priests, Pharisees, hard-hearted, rejecting of Christ, they are not Israel. They're not the true Israel. Those who received Christ and believed in him, these were the true Israel. While the chief priests, elders, and Pharisees who did not believe or receive him were not true Israel, although they were descended from Abraham, although circumcised and called by the name of Israel, yet they were no better than Ishmael or Esau. If you told that to them, they would punch you in the face. So no, God did not simply throw out his covenant with Israel. He didn't just cast off Israel as a whole. The promises he made to Israel were always only for his elect people within Israel. So still in Romans, go to chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself, Paul says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, right? whom he chose. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone and left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. All right, so same with Jesus' day, same. There's a remnant chosen, not all who call themselves Israel, belong to Israel. But those who, chosen by grace, believed God, believed his word, looked towards the Messiah, either future or present with them, that was the true people of God. So what then is the relationship between Israel and the church? Right, and this is an important question. This comes down, if you're a guy who, who likes theological categories. This comes down to the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology. It really does. 
Does God have two special peoples now? Right? We got Israel and the church. No. No. What did Jesus say? I'm taking the kingdom away from you. Not now I have two kingdoms. Right? Or we go into John. When, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd, my, my sheep hear my voice, right? My true, true Israel hears my voice. They believe and they come out. And then I've got other people, the Gentiles, and they'll come out. And there will be one flock. Not, now I got two flocks. No, there will be one flock. Not two. There's one. Jesus says to them, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. You in this verse is referring to the unbelieving Jews. So the Jews were from the time of Abraham's call, the visible people of God, the, the church of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God was made visible through them. Israel was God's kingdom, the people under his rule. But not all were a visible part of this kingdom, or not all who were a visible part of the kingdom were really God's people. Their long track record of unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion, we just read about that at the beginning of the service, right? Moses hasn't even walked down the mountain with the Ten Commandments yet, and they've made an idol. They've already rebelled against it. They've already broken the covenant. Their long track record testifies to this. But yet there was and always has been a remnant of foreknown, elected, and faithful Israel. Even our own confession, 1689 confession, says this in chapter 26, paragraph 3. Christ always has had and will have in this world, to the very end, a kingdom of those who believe in him, and profess his name. And that's true not only of New Testament times, but also of, from the beginning of time. God has always had a people, a faithful people, maybe small, maybe undetectable to most of us throughout history, but yet they were there. All through the time of Israel, they were there. Through the time of Christ, they were there. A faithful people. The kingdom has not been taken away from believing Israel, but from unbelieving Israel. So the true Israel received their Messiah. They received their cornerstone. They joined in with the called out ones, the church. They are the sheep that we talked about in John chapter 10. But again, one flock, not two. There is only one true people of God. And it is those who believe and confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior, whether Jew or Gentile. So true Israel was the church of the Old Testament. And the church is the, new, is the Israel of the New Testament. There's one, one people of God, not two. Well, how then, quickly, how then should we view the unbelieving nation of Israel today. And this is a huge thing, especially with what's going on right now. You know, there are, again, I grew up in a, in a church that, you know, thought, yeah, you got two peoples of God. You got Israel and you got the church, right? And so we need to pray for Israel. We, you know, if you, 
I heard just recently someone told me in this situation in the Middle East, well, you know, the, the Israelites are still the apple of God's eye. Don't touch the apple of God's eye. No, believing Israel is the apple of God's eye. So how should we then view Israel today? Well, I'll tell you what Paul said about it in Scripture. Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, unbelieving Israel, is that they may be saved. That's how we need to view Israel. They're a nation, unbelieving Israel that is, they're a nation who has missed their Messiah. And their only hope is that they come to him. They realize they've missed him. They've got to turn around. They've got to change their mind about him and come to him as Savior, as Lord, as Son of God, as the source of their righteousness. And so in that way, we would look at Israel just like we would look at any other lost nation. They need the gospel. They need Christ. Last thing as we look at this parable. And we see in this parable that Jesus Christ is the deciding factor. He is the deciding factor of who God's people are and who they are not. It is Jesus Christ and our relationship to him that determines if we are a part of the kingdom of God, if we are of God's people or not. This is what is meant for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone was the stone that was laid in that foundation first. It's that first stone. It determines everything about that building, the level of the building, the lay of the building. Everything was built upon and set to that chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's people. Without him, there would be no people of God, period. There would be no hope for sinners to enter God's kingdom. Without the person of Christ, that is him being fully God, fully man, there would be no mediator. He's the only one who could be He's the only one who could stand between God and man and bring reconciliation. There was no one else worthy, no one else who could stand in that gap but Jesus Christ. Without his sinless life, there would be no perfect righteousness to impute to sinners. Without his atoning death on the cross, there would be no payment for sin. There would be no satisfaction of God's justice there would be no forgiveness for sinners. Without his resurrection, there would be no renewal of all things. But Jesus did all this, and he was the only one who could do all this. He is a rock of refuge and salvation to all who come to him, who believe on him and call on his name. He is the rock of refuge. We come to him to be made God's people. You see, we're not God's people because we're part of a certain ethnic group. We're not God's people because we're a part of a certain religious group. It's not about just being a part of this group. It's about 
being related to Jesus Christ. It's about coming to him in repentance and faith. But remember, this rock of refuge is also an instrument of judgment. So my friend, you cannot resist Jesus Christ and win. That's the other point of this parable. You cannot deny him and win. You cannot fight him and win. You cannot ignore him and think that it will just be okay in the end. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord of all. You cannot lower him to a mere moral teacher among other moral teachers. That is to reject God's chosen cornerstone, just as the chief priests and elders and Pharisees did. And if you do that, you will share in their condemnation. The gentle and lowly Jesus Christ is also the high and exalted Lord who rules the nations with a rod of iron and will crush his enemies to the dust. So my friend, your only hope is to bow your knee to Christ. So that's the question. It's not about this morning, are, are you a part of such and such a church? Are you a part of this group? Are you from this ethnic group? It's not about that. What is your relationship to Christ? That's what it is. And no matter who you are, what group you come from, you come to Christ. You bow your knee to him. You confess your sin to him. Throw yourself upon him. You are the people of God. You reject him and you are not. Nor can you ever be without him. So let's close in prayer. Lord, again, we ask for your grace. Lord, that these truths would sink to our hearts and our minds, O oh God. That Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Lord, I pray you would help us to cast ourselves upon him. To not look to pride in, in self and whatever group we may be a part of, but that we would look to Christ. And Lord, we do join with the Apostle Paul in praying for your unbelieving, hardened people who have been thrown out of the kingdom. Lord, we pray you would have mercy upon them. We pray you would open their eyes to turn to Christ, to realize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah and their Savior. And that you would do as Paul said and graft them back in to that tree. But we thank you, Lord, you've sent this gospel to every nation. We pray, Lord, that you would bless its progress, Lord, through many missionaries, many indigenous churches around the world. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of the gospel, that men, all nations would come to this cornerstone, your son, Jesus Christ, be joined to him and be made part of that one people of God that you are redeeming for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.